After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word to us. Would you do what only you can do and infuse it and direct it and instruct our hearts by it today, that you would cause us to be changed by it. This is a familiar chapter for many of us and a story that we've heard many times. May we not grow weary in hearing it. Would you refresh our hearts by your good promise to Abram, carried through all the way to the great Redeemer, who saved us from our sins. It is in His name, the name of Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Genesis 15 is that. It is one of those chapters in the Bible that is significant on many levels. It's one that is foundational. And as I, I was trying to think of something that you, know, you keep coming back to in life, something that is so foundational... Uh, it's weird, I'm at this age now where even as I think back to things that I learned in Boy Scouts or something, I still think my dad taught me stuff that was before. I mean, you know, you go into a campsite, you lean it, leave it cleaner than you found it. That was something my dad taught me. I remember him drilling at home, if you ever borrowed somebody's car, you filled it up with gas, including his, right? <laughs> and to this day, <laughs> and to this day I, that's, that's something that I do. So there are these foundational things that have been instilled in our lives that we go back to 
again and again, we, we find them to be uh, helpful. That's what Genesis 15 is. This is not just for Old Testament scholars. This is for us today. And there is so much here that by the time I finished writing my sermon, um, I was, well, by the time I was halfway finished writing my sermon, I had written a sermon. That means that there's going to be a part two. So this is part one of part two. I thought I would be able to get it all in one, but I realized by Friday afternoon after the bulletins were printed that this was going to be part one. So we'll continue in Genesis 15 uh, next week. But it's incredibly uh, important that we take our time, I think, in looking at this. Let me just mention some of the things that, that jump off the pages to us as we, as we read through it just now. First, the command in verse one to fear not. Possibly the command that appears more than any other command in Scripture. I saw that tweeted just yesterday and I've heard it many times that that's the most common command in Scripture. I did some cursory searches enough to see that it's in Scripture a lot. Uh, I didn't compare it to every other. The problem you get when you're looking at language is there's different ways of phrasing things. So there's fear not, there's do not be afraid, there's do not fear, all in English. And even that doesn't accomplish the search. But just those three terms alone, there's over a hundred times that appears in the, at least the ESV of the Bible. In other words, this is a very important message that God repeats over and over to His people that we should hear. This is a message for you today. Don't be afraid. Do not fear. He tells Abram not to fear because he says shield. He says, I am your shield. I'm your protector. I'm your savior. I'm the one who delivers It is who I am. Again, I've heard it said that if you could distill the Bible into two words, it is God saves. Or if you wanted three words, it's God saves sinners. That's who God is. He is Savior. We see God use the I am formula to reveal Himself as the self-existent one. This is what God would say to Moses some years later when Moses says, Who do I tell them sent me? And he says, I am sent you. That's God's name, how He revealed Himself. And we see Jesus use this to reveal His divinity. In the Gospel of John in particular, we see seven I am statements uh, that, that Jesus used. I am the good shepherd, I am the door, I am the bread of life. These statements that revealed who He was and His divinity. We see Abram ask some very honest questions and make some very blunt statements. Something that we're often afraid to do. But as we saw in the psalm that we read this morning, as we see in other psalms and throughout Scripture, God is not intimidated the way that we are by hard questions. His word can handle it. We see God reiterate His promise to Abram, giving greater detail, even though the fulfillment of this was years away. It wasn't just around the corner. It would be some years before He would have a son. It would be centuries before the people would possess the land. They're going to spend 400 years in Egypt. And yet God says, I'm going to do what I said I would do. He keeps His promises. In verse 6, we read what is a hallmark of the Christian faith. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Justification by faith. Sola fide. We've just been through the Reformation period and been reminded of these precious truths. We're saved not by our works, but by grace through faith. We see the covenant ratified in this strange episode we'll look at in more detail next week in which Abram is put into this deep sleep. Why is that? It's because he didn't have a thing to do with it. God saves 
We say monergistically, solely. God does the work. He proclaims the covenant, and then He does all the work to keep it. He is the covenant-keeping God. That is something that we should give thanks for because we break the covenant every day. And just as we read in the psalm this morning, in the responsive reading, even if your sons disobey, I'm not going to break the covenant, God says. I'm going to keep the covenant. It's who He is. We see that the discipline of God is often not punitive as it is for our good. Now, in English, when we hear the word discipline, we automatically think of judgment or we think in a punitive sense, think of disciplining our children, that correction that's done. But we do a lot of discipline with our children that's not punitive. We teach them how to hold a fork, how to cut with a knife. There's nothing punitive in that. We train them in that. When they put it down and they want to use their hands, we correct them. Why? Because we love them and, you know, we don't want them to eat like monsters when they're, you know, if they're still doing this at 16, it becomes a problem, right? So we correct them. We discipline them in a loving way because we know what's best for them. And God is going to prepare. He's going to train His people and discipline them, not for anything wrong that they did, but because he's waiting for the Amorites, it says, for their judgment to come to They're going to go to Egypt for 400 years. Suffering will not be wasted, though. Is that applicable to our lives today? You bet. What about the timing of it? With God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. How applicable all of these things are to our own lives. We could go on. There are more things that we could draw out. These things are vital to our faith, vital to what we believe. But we will, we will look at this. I was going to, again, try to do it as a whole. We're going to say two parts now. I think I can get it in, in, in two parts this week and next week. We'll look at the first six verses today. There are two scenes that we see here. The first six verses is one scene, and we know this because God takes Abram outside and says what? Look up at the stars. It's nighttime. And then in the second scene, there's a day and an evening because it talks about the sun setting. So we don't know if it's the exact day after or a few days after, but there are these two separate scenes. The first focuses on the promise of a son, the promise of an heir. That's what we'll look at today. And the second on the promise of the land. Let me give you a thesis statement that we might use to sum up chapter 15. God is our protector because of His great love and promises to save us, His people. And because He keeps His promises, we can and should trust Him. And it is by our faith in Him He credits us with His very own righteousness whereby we are saved. And so beginning now in verse 1, let's unpack this. This is again focused on the promise of the Son. He's already been given this promise, if you remember back in Genesis 12. It was implied in that He would be made into a great nation. Now there's some more detail given. Because Abram thinks, wait a second, I I don't even have an heir. I don't have a son. And God says, you're going to have one. Now, what the way that God works and the way that God speaks to Abram and what Abram talks about really is applicable to me. I think it will be to many of us in the room. And that is when we are in a situation where we don't have all the answers, what is, what's the way our heart looks to God? Does our heart look to God as our treasure and our hope? Or do we go to God and say, give me the goods. I want saving. I want deliverance. Provide this thing. Fix this problem. 
Remove this issue. Solve this for me, God. That's what I want. And in a sense, that's what Abram's doing. It's very honest, something that we can recognize in our own hearts and our own lives. But God promises not only the solution, which God always is working for our good and His glory. We have to remember that. And that's one of the reasons why we shouldn't be afraid, is that I saw, <laughs> I saw somebody again post this week. Uh, it was this morning. It's very timely. When God saved you, He had already factored in your stupidity. Take heart. <laughs> that was good for me to read this morning. When God called you His child and saved you, He factored in all of those issues that you're facing, all of those needs, all of those problems that need to be solved. Those are already dealt with, but he's offering you something better than just a solution to problems. He's offering you himself. That was the great promise and the great uh, 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 fruit of that promise given not only to Abram, but also to us. He says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. There's a debate about whether that reward means... The, the land and the, and the sun, the promise of that, or whether it means God himself, I would argue that it's both because that's what God does. God gives him the sun. It's going to be not, not too far in the future. He's going to give the descendants the land. It's still going to be a few centuries away. But in particular, God gives himself to Abram. And one of the ways that God does this is by giving Abram his righteousness. God gives Abram God's righteousness because Abram trusts God. God credits that faith as righteousness. God gives him himself. And of course, all of this is pointing us to something far greater. One of the reasons why it was so helpful to read the the Davidic covenant in the psalm this morning was to see how this, this covenant continues to unfold. It's one, one, really one covenant that's working itself out through redemption and is fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. All of this pointing to God who would come and give himself as a ransom for many so that he's not just Abram's God, he's your God and he's my God. We see so much about who God is in this. We see so much about our own salvation. That salvation isn't simply being saved from judgment. I hope that you you know that, that your salvation isn't just fire insurance. I mean, we want to be saved from judgment for sure. There's, you know, none of us want to face the wrath of God. Hebrews 10, 31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But salvation is so much more than that. It is not only being saved from God's wrath, it's being saved to God as His possession. God gives us Himself, not only in the person and the work of Jesus and our salvation, but he gives, uh, he gives Himself to us. That's what we are looking forward to that we read about in Revelation 21, verse 3, that He is our great treasure and our great reward. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with His people, and God, <clears throat> and they will be with, be His people, rather, and God Himself will be with them as their God. That's what we're looking forward to. It's not just the salvation from His wrath. It's not just the freedom from these bodies that continue to decay and decline and ache and hurt. It's not just salvation from injustice in the world or the other effects of sin in the world. It's that we are being saved to be gods. 
to be fulfilled in ways that we can't even imagine, to know pleasures forevermore that we can't even begin to think about because all of that is found in Him. But we can understand why Abram would want to know why. I mean, he doesn't have all the detail that we have. We're looking back through the revelation of Scripture, through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Abram doesn't have all that detail. So we can be a little understanding then, because we ourselves ask the same questions, how are you going to do this, God? How is this going to happen? And that's what he asks. He reminds God, I can, he reminds him twice, I continue to be childless. And then in, that was in verse 2, verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring. I think it's interesting that he uses the word behold because that's not a word that we use every day. In fact, besides reading Scripture, I can't think of a time that I did use that word. Behold, it's one of those things that says, look, you know, pay attention. It's, it's, a, it's a word that's usually followed by an exclamation mark. But here, Abram uses it in a different sense. It's almost a bit of a jab. There's a little bit of, there's certainly irony in this. God, how are you going to do this? I don't even have a child. Behold. Um, But there's also maybe a little sarcasm here as well. He's in essence saying, look, God, you, you haven't given me a child. He's not saying, look, God, behold. It's more of this kind of poke that he's making. And so isn't it interesting then that the author of Genesis, Moses, in verse 4, the very next verse after this statement, he uses the word behold in its typical fashion. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. There's your answer. (laughs) When you come to God and say, look, look, God, behold, you, you haven't done this. You haven't taken care of this. Behold, the word of the Lord has been given to you, and in it is the answer. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eliezer, his servant, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. No mistaking the, 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 provident, or the provision here, right? God is actually going to give him a son. God's word came to, to, to Abram, and his solution is this Uh, this answer to this very blunt statement that Abram made, which is an incredible uh, lesson for us, that God's Word can handle our tough questions. God's Word can handle our blunt statements. Behold, you have been given God's Word. Look at it. Ask your tough questions. See our God who keeps His promises and loves without end, who changes not, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word is sufficient for everything. It's it's sufficient for all life and all godliness. Now again, the statement that he makes about this heir is this uh, servant, his chief servant, Eliezer. By uh, tradition at this point in history, he would have been the one, if Abram had not had a son, to inherit it. And this was Abram's fear. He He wanted a son. He didn't want the stuff to go to Eliezer. It wasn't about the stuff and it wasn't about Eliezer, but he wanted a son. And so God takes him out after reiterating the promise, not only reiterating the promise, but clarifying it. You are going to have a son. Your own son is going to be your heir. He takes him outside and says, look at the stars. Count them if you're able. So shall your offspring be. It's hard for us to imagine what Abram actually saw here because the night sky at this time would have been very different from what we have ever seen. Uh, we've known some dark night skies in our time, 
but there's still light pollution and other kinds of chemical or whatever else, dirt, dust, things that have been stirred up by so many people living on the earth. At this time, that wasn't a problem. The skies were darker than you and I could ever imagine. What Abram saw had to have been phenomenal. And yet, even though we know because of technology and telescopes and so forth, we know incredibly more about the night sky and the stars and how they seem incalculable as we go further and further discovering things in this space. It only makes this promise greater because it's all those stars too that point to the promise of God. It's all of those stars that indicate that the sons of Abraham, us, we who are the sons and daughters of the promise, are incalculable. And so with this illustration and with this promise, even without a child or even at this point a hope of a child because Abram and Sarai are not getting any younger now they're older than they were in chapter 12, Abram still believes God. He believes Him. He takes Him at His word. In his own eyes and to all his other senses, there is no way he's going to have a son. It's it's too late. Every physical indication is that the time is up. There is no child. And yet, in the face of all of that, Abram chose to believe Yahweh. And it says, the Lord credited to Abram his, God's, the Lord's righteousness. Justification by faith. All the way back. This is not something we see in the New Testament alone. But all the way back here in Genesis. From the very beginning, this is how God has always worked. Not justification by the law, justification by faith. And in that sense, it's counterintuitive because the way all of our brains and hearts work is justification by the law. I mean, it's how we function. You know, we talk about the little legalist that's in all of our heart that pops his his head up at times and wants wants to to, to validate or to, to defend or to accuse. We've all got that little guy in there that likes to pop up, and yet it's counterintuitive in that sense because it's by faith that we're justified. Paul explains this in Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Let me read just from Galatians 3 verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. We know that, right? We know that if you break one law, you're guilty. And there's, there's no one who hasn't bro- broken any. We've broken all of them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. This was something that Abram possessed. And we learn later that it wasn't Abram alone, but Abram and Sarai both possessed this faith. It wasn't a perfect faith. It wasn't that they were sinless, but they both trusted God. Hebrews 11 says, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. She was past the age. Humanly speaking, she couldn't have a child. But she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Don't misunderstand this, what's being described here. This is not faith in faith. 
This is not faith in anything you wish. Faith that is credited as righteousness is faith in the God who saves. Faith has an object. Saving faith has an object. It is God Himself. Abram and Sarai were looking forward. They were looking forward in that promise. They didn't have all the details that we have. They just knew that God would do what He said He would do. They were looking forward to the promised one that would come. We look backward to the promised one who has come, Jesus the Messiah, and our faith is credited with His righteousness. This faith is simply trust, simply believing and resting in Jesus instead of in yourself, trusting in His death instead of your good works, trusting in His promises to you instead of trusting in your hopes. You and I aren't saved because we're good enough. You and I aren't saved because we have good intentions or that we hope we're enough. We are saved solely and alone and completely by trusting in, resting in, and believing in Jesus. And so justification by faith in is an incredible thing for us to consider even today. It goes all the way back here to Genesis. It's taught throughout the Scriptures. Now, it's gotten lost at some points in history, and this is one of the things we just celebrated with the Reformation, that it, has been, it was rediscovered at that time by people who faithfully searched the Scriptures. Martin Luther, for example, came to realize that it was justification by faith in Jesus, that no works of ours can add anything to what Christ has done. Nothing we do is meritorious. We can't buy indulgences for ourselves. We can't buy indulgences for those who have died and gone on before us. There are no benefits that we gain in the sense of our salvation from serving in Christ's church. We simply can't earn it. We come instead as sinners, poor and wretched, weak and sore, wounded and sick, or as the words from Come Ye Sinners, the hymn, Come Ye Needy, Come and Welcome, God's Free Bounty Glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. Without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. That's how we're saved. Paul says it this way in Romans 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is the great mark of our faith and our blessing, that our sins have been forgiven, that our sins are covered. The Lord will not hold it against us. Why? Just because he chooses not to? No. No, he's holy. They had to be dealt with, and they were. Abram wasn't saved because he was sinless. We know already Abram was a sinner. We're going to see even more as the story continues to unfold. But the Lord doesn't hold His sins against Him or your sins or my sins against me because of what Jesus has done. He paid for our sins. He died for them. And this is why we're called to trust in Him. Faith, Even faith itself is not meritorious. Faith by itself, faith in Jesus doesn't earn us anything. 
Jesus earned everything for us. We're trusting Him. That's why we can say, come without money and buy. We don't have anything in our hands. We're coming. He's not only dealt with the problem, He's paying for the problem to to solve it. He's doing everything. Just as we're going to see Abram was put into a sleep to be shown that he had nothing to do in the covenant. So we see Jesus do everything. In Revelation 21 again, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Believe that today. Come to Jesus without money. Come in your thirstiness and be justified by faith. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. Salvation has always been by faith alone and it will always be by faith alone. Listen to Paul's closing words in chapter 4. The words, it was counted to him. The words we just read. Paul saying the words that were written in Genesis 15. These words were, were not written for his sake alone. But for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. That's why Genesis 15 was written. It was written for you and it was written for me that we might look to Jesus in faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, cause our hearts to not only see but to sing of this great faith that is ours in Christ, the justification of our sins, that everything's been dealt with, that our sins are forgiven, that the debt has been paid, that there isn't anything that we can do to add to the finished work of Christ. When He said on the cross, it is finished, that's what He meant. Lord, cause our hearts to sing at that, that we would be thankful and live in not only this faith that we possess today, but in a faith that is growing that you would mature us in our faith, that you would take us to places that we haven't been yet because you open our eyes to see all that is ours in Jesus. And may with that confidence we go out these front doors to not be afraid, to not fear, but to walk in the confidence of being held perfectly by you, our shield and our Savior. Do this in our hearts today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.